welcome to Voice for Choice podcast, the podcast that focuses on China issues with special attention to the Central and Eastern European perspective. I'm your host, Karanya Mechkova. Joining me today will be Joshua Eisenman. Joshua Eisenman is Associate Professor of Politics in the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. He is a Senior Fellow for China Studies at the American Foreign Policy Council. Today we will be discussing China's diplomacy towards the Global South against the backdrop of the war in Ukraine. Hello, Joshua. Hello. Thank you for accepting to be on our podcast. It's a great pleasure. That's my pleasure. Before we get to the serious stuff, I like to ask my guests two personal questions. So we set the mood, you know, um, the, the people who are listening to us understand a little bit of the background of the guests. When you first arrived to China, what was your impression of the country? Wow, this is a very uh, nostalgic question. You know, really takes me back because the first time I went to China, I was a, a university student in 1998 and, um, you know, had a desire to study, of all things, archaeology. And I was able to find a program where I could study archaeology at Xi'an Jiao Tong University. And through the guanxi or the interpersonal relations among the professors, I was able to dig terracotta warriors Right. So my first experience in China was as an archaeology student digging terracotta warriors kind of unofficially with the other students and, you know, playing basketball on the Xi'an Jiao Tong campus and being one of the rare foreigners in a place like Xi'an at that time. And the really positive views people had of the West of the United States in particular. I mean, this was after, I think, Bill Clinton's visit. And there was this real positive vibe about U.S.-China relations. I mean, I can't, can't contrast it enough with what's going on now. It's, it's actually quite depressing given where we began. And, you know, the free and open discussions that I had with people, I mean, at that time, people would make a joke about Li Peng or about Jiang Zemin. It was no big deal, right? In fact, they were proud to do it because they suggested it showed how far China had come. Right? You could never make such a joke about Mao, they would tell you. Right, My grandmother would never, my mother would never, but now China is changing. And so there was a great pride in how China was changing, China was reforming, China would never go back to the one-man rule. And there was pride in that, that there was a, an advancement. And I believe there was a general feeling, especially among um, students and faculty, that eventually China would become a more free, more liberal, more democratic place. And so in looking back, it becomes quite um, unfortunate to some degree to see where we've kind of gone to. But at that time, the optimism there Right. I, can't, I mean, it was it was infectious. And quickly I determined that, uh, you know, I don't want to study ancient China. I want to study what's going on here now, because what's going on on the surface of the earth is more interesting than these terracotta warriors. And those terracotta warriors are awesome. Do you remember the particular moment when you decided that um, you're going to focus on China professionally? Well, Let's put it this way. I don't perhaps know that moment, but I know the moment that I decided that China is amazing and I have to study this thing. Um, so I grew up in New York, outside of New York City in suburbs. And there was only one Chinese girl uh, that I knew. Um, her name was Fong. So I was Eisenman. So I actually sat next to her. Um, but uh, she was from Hong Kong and uh, this was not any kind of a... You know, she was a Chinese-American person, but that was the only introduction I had to anything Chinese at all, was this one person uh, who was in my school. And I didn't think of China at all 
until I was maybe 17 or 18 when I, I had a girlfriend at the time and um, she really liked uh, the paintings of Claude Monet and she wanted to see some Monet and I, uh, trying to be accommodating, took her to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Okay, carriage ride, everything, but we'll save that. It's a different story. And we took her to the museum and she spent the whole time with the Monets and the water lilies. Eventually, I got a little tired of water lilies and I went to wander in the museum. It's a beautiful museum. Everybody should visit the Metropolitan Museum in New York. Um, and it happened to be that as luck would have it, the Taipei Palace Museum was having its very first exhibit of art outside of China. And there were these guys, soldiers, like Taiwanese soldiers, right, with glasses on protecting this art, I guess, in the fear that somebody might try to take it back to the mainland or something. And so here I just accidentally wandered into this exhibit of the finest art in Chinese history, right? Just stumbled onto it and was blown away. Could not be brought to any Monet. I was finished, you know, just let me know I'm here. And I just spent... You know, she could barely drag me out of the museum because I decided at that moment, I want to study this. I want to know what it says on that scroll. I want to understand who this guy is floating in the, you know, because the topics were so different than what our topics in art in the West are, you know. Half the topics are like some uh, aristocrat being painted by Rembrandt or, you know, uh, JC on a cross. And to uh, to me, this was like a, a whole new set of topics that, that was being explored in a lot of empty space. And so I was fascinated. I decided I wanted to study, study Chinese history, culture, and literature. That's why I went to study archaeology, because I wanted to do that. That's what I wanted to do. Um, and it was only later that, as I said before, that I came to realize that what was going on above the surface was just as amazing as what was going on underneath the ground and that the history I saw was a prelude to the future and that I also came to realize quite honestly that uh, my Chinese language skills would probably not get to the level in classical Chinese they would have to be to study Chinese literature, poetry, and art that um, these things have a different Chinese, right? They have a, uh, the classical style, um, which is it's more difficult, right? And it's more challenging for a non-native speaker you know, I'm not saying people don't do it. People like Jonathan Chaves, my professor, uh, he was amazing at it. But for me, um, I, I realized that both this fascination with the present as well as the barriers to studying the past um, led me quite determinately to study contemporary China um, and both domestically and internationally. With the focus on Global South, right? Yes. How that came about? So this is interesting. Okay, so... Um, I was in Washington, D.C. Um, in the early 2000s, and I was interning numerous places. There wasn't a photocopy machine in Washington I wasn't well acquainted with. And um, I took on, after I got my master's, at a place called the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission. It's called the USCC, or the U.S.-China Commission. Um, and at the U.S.-China Commission, I had the portfolio of the economics portfolio, and I began to look at China's economic relations around the world. And, um, and we actually held some hearings. You can look on the USCC website and find those hearings. The first um, hearings that I know of that were about China and the world. And that China and the world hearing was a full two-day hearing that I put together as the lead staffer. Um, and so we, we looked at all different areas of the world, including Africa, including Latin America, including Central Asia and the Global South. Um, and, in do, and through this process, I came to understand that China places a lot of emphasis on the global south, more so than any IR theorist thinks, right? IR theorists, they're obsessed with 
great power relations to them. Everything is great power relations. Well, guess what? Most countries in the world are not great powers, right? And this means there's a lot of international relations that's being left on the table, not really discussed. And China's prioritization of the global south is something that IR theorists still have a hard time explaining because it doesn't fit in their narrative. What I came to realize that made me interested in it was that it was the case. Right? And that China's prioritization geopolitically of these areas was not only something that began in the Mao era, um, but was something that was going to continue going forward. And you know, I remember in the early 2000s, this is when the FOCAC, uh, the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, got started in 2000. Um, and so there was this kind of momentum being built. And I had contacts in the Chinese embassy. Um, we would have occasional lunches, and I would talk to them. And I was shocked with the amount that they talked about the Global South and the value they placed on it. And so I became fascinated by this and um, began writing on it. And so um, this was kind of how I got started. Now, one of the people who testified at this hearing was a man named Ambassador David Shin. Well, how did I meet him? Well, I went to George Washington. He did too. At the retirement ceremony of the dean, we happened to get on the buffet line together. And I was in desperate, desperate search for anybody to talk about China and Africa. And he, at that point, had never studied China and Africa, never even looked at it, right? But he was fascinated by it. And he said, okay, he agreed. He twisted his arm, but he agreed to testify. And he came and he gave brilliant testimony along with Ambassador Princeton Lyman, uh, who will rest in peace. And uh, Ambassador Shin and I uh, struck up a friendship and then a professional collaboration. And that collaboration began um, in 2000s and then was able to produce our first book, um, China and Africa, A Century of Engagement, and then went on to produce uh, a book uh, that's going to be coming out next year um, that he and I have put together on the China-Africa political and security relationship. Now, I should say, though, and this is important, getting to your question, my first book was actually China and the Developing World, Beijing's Strategy for the 21st Century, published in 2007. It's an edited volume, and it should give you a sense of how we thought that, how I thought, and this was to me a way to push back against those people who only wanted to look at China, US, China, Russia, but to push back and say, no, China's strategy for the 21st century is the global south, or what we now call the global south. Then we called the developing world, and before that we called the third world, but I think it's all kind of the same thing, at least as I understand it. Somebody made distinctions can be taught to me, but, uh, and so um, this is part of, this is being China-Africa relations, is part of China's relations with the global south. And so if you think of China's geostrategy, a subset of that is China and the global south, and a subset of China and the global south is China-Africa. And I would just say that one mistake that some Africanists make is I think they're constantly wondering about what is China compared to Portugal? What is China compared to Britain, France, uh, uh, Belgium, the previous colonial powers. And of course, compared to them, China looks great because China isn't engaged in full-on colonialism. But I don't think that's a proper way to view China in Africa because it's not how they view it. You know, they don't see themselves as just the newest foreigners to show up on African shores, right? They view Africa as part of a larger geostrategy that to me, to actually understand China-Africa relations, if you don't understand wh why Africa is important to China, then you kind of miss the bigger picture. And so this is one reason I work with Ambassador Shin as an Africanist is to make sure that we are making sure we are checking each other. But um, you know, my interest in this uh, quite fortuitously began a long time ago um, and then continued. 
Why is China interested in the global south? And is that something we should be concerned about in Europe? Hmm. Well, China's interest in the global south politically anyway um, has to do with its core national interests. And China wants the countries around the world to recognize um, that uh, the legitimacy of the Communist Party of China to rule China. They want to uh, recognize the territorial claims um, and they want to perpetuate China's growth and development. And this is the kind of three things I would say usually conceived as China's core national interests. And they see the global South countries are important in, in, in all of these regards, right? Economically, they supply the materials to achieve the development, but then they also provide important political support in venues like the United Nations. And as we just saw, right, um, the, the reason we're not debating at the UN, the UN report on Xinjiang is because the countries of the global South voted with China not to even debate the issue. And this gives you a sense of the geopolitical importance of these countries, right? I mean, if not for China's relations in the global south, we would be talking about what's going on in Xinjiang at the United Nations. But they were able to thwart that effort through these relations. And so this underscores the real, the, the importance of the global south countries geostrategically um, to China. Do you think that this vote reflects that China managed to convince them about their world perspective, about you know their um, model of international order, or does that simply reflect that they are voting where the money is? Well, I think what is is uh, Mohammed Mahathir in in Malaysia kind of said it best, and most frankly, when he said, you know, what is to be gained, right? In his view, yes, Malaysia could stand up with other Muslims, but to what end? Right in his view, right the the, the camps would still go on. Um, the only thing that would be happened is that Malaysia-China relations would be harmed and primarily undermine Malaysia's interests. So I guess his view is, as a Malaysian leader, that his view is to protect the Malaysian interests above all else. And hard to argue with that perspective, right? He's elected by Malaysians. It made sense to make that argument. Still, however, I do believe that the Muslim countries of the world silence is to their great, great detriment. I think it not only undermines their credibility on a whole host of issues, but I think it, and, and, and I hope Muslim friends won't take this the wrong way, but I do think it undermines their respect in Beijing. You know, if Muslim countries were rounding up Chinese people and putting them in camps, I do say that the Chinese government would do almost everything it could to condemn that behavior. And there could be no amount of money that I believe could buy Beijing off. So the fact that you have countries that are willing to take a check and not stand up for Muslim rights, I think under the surface, there has to be a little bit of kind of, well, a lack of respect for that position. Because honestly, that position does not deserve much respect because these are people who need to be protected regardless of their religion. Um, in some ways, the Israeli government has actually been more forward-leaning than a lot of governments in the Muslim world. I don't think that resounds to their great benefit, that is the Muslim governments. Um, but it does reflect to some degree the money, um, right? Because a place like Egypt, you know, uh, places uh, who have taken a large amount of Chinese financing uh, may be more reluctant to push back. Um, they may face some problems if they do. So I do think that the Belt and Road Initiative has played some role, um, the, the financing, although this has come down quite significantly during COVID, um, and I think will continue to come down, um, it's still on the books, right? Um, and if you want, say, to uh, 
have your loan rewritten or you want to delay payments for whatever reason, um, well, then being on China's good side politically is the most important. And there is really one important thing I want to say here for all of your listeners. The Communist Party of China is a political organization first and foremost. It may have economic, military, or political means to achieve its goals, but its goals are always political, okay? The goal of the Communist Party is not to get rich. It's to get rich to get power. And if you get rich and you lose China to them, that's a failure. That's not a success. And they look at the KMT, the Kuomintang government in Taiwan, which got extremely rich and remains one of the richest parties in Asia today, but lost China. And now guess what? They lost Taiwan too. So there is a, for them, there is an end game here. And that end game is to maintain their power. We will get to the BRI financing later in the podcast. But speaking about the voting in the multilateral bodies, Many countries of the global south hold the same view of the war in Ukraine as China and have maintained a position of neutrality. On a recent resolution on Russia's annexation of the occupied territories in Ukraine, large economies of the developing world have abstained in the vote. Do you think uh, there is something to do with China here, or is that a coincidence they, held, uh, they hold the same view? And do you think China can leverage their converging views to strengthen its position in the international arena? You know, China's position on the Ukraine is colored by a whole variety of events. One of those is the fact that China has, and I guess this is a horror from the Cold War, prioritized Russia and given it a lot of respect in the international community, far more than many other countries, um, despite the fact that Russia's economy, uh, you know, is quite small compared to others, um, despite the, the fact that, you know, Russia geopolitically, its influence had actually been reduced Um, China continued to give deference to Russia and especially under Xi Jinping um, work with Russia and create a very close relationship uh, with Russia. And so I think the kind of backdrop of all of this is that February meeting between Xi and Putin where basically they say this is a no-limits relationship. And the New York Times has reported it was during that meeting, during those meetings, that the Russians actually told the Chinese side that we're going to launch this invasion. Well, wow, okay, if that's true, let's just, I have no way to verify independently, but let's just say if that's true, then the Chinese basically blessed the invasion. And if they blessed the invasion, then they must be greatly disappointed, right? Because nobody wants to support a loser and Vladimir Putin is going to lose. And the Chinese don't want to be on the losing side. And that's not a Chinese thing. That's, you know, that's an everybody thing, right? When you go to, when you go to the soccer match, the soccer team that's, The better team tends to have more fans there, generally speaking, right? Um, and so this is something where I think China, in the recent meetings in Kazakhstan, there are kind of, there was a, let's just put it this way, there was no full-throated Chinese endorsement of Ukraine invasion at that meeting. I think that tells you that China's position is a little nervous at this point. Um, it's also difficult for them because China has long supported this uh, non-interference policy and, in fact, even endorsed Ukrainian sovereignty at one point. And now that seems that it has been basically forgotten or neglected. And I think that that does not help, uh, you know, when you're trying to say that we're the country that supports non-intervention and there you're supporting the country which is literally invading its neighbor. And, and, you know, Chinese friends may remember Mao Zedong often talked about the Russian invasion of the, of the Chinese Far East. Um, now, that has not been talked about recently, but I think it should be, because I don't see any reason why 
the Russian invasion of Ukraine is any more or less legitimate than the Russian invasion of the Chinese Far East. When the Chinese were poor, the Russians took their territories. And so this obsession with the Diaoyu Islands, this obsession with Taiwan and the South China Sea, honestly, I wish friends in Beijing would look northward because that's where the true valuable territory lies as far as I can see, but they are silent on it. So this constant deference to Russia, I think it, it has not served China's interests. In fact, China's shift to Russia has helped to perpetuate a great downfall in its image around the world. So China has, I think, suffered. Um, from its close relations with Russia. And these countries in the global south, which abstained from this, um, you know, I, I would have to get in and look at kind of each and every one, but I can tell you that there was only one African country that voted to debate uh, the Uyghur issue. Um, I don't know, do you want to guess? I have no clue. Somalia. Okay, maybe they have nothing to lose. I don't know, but they're the only member of this kind of grouping of Muslim countries that actually voted for this. Now, I, I don't know enough about Somalia to know how or why they're the only one, but the fact that they are the only one, um, I think it tells you a lot about the power that China has in Africa and in, among these um, global countries, uh, global South countries and Muslim countries. And so um, China's uh, success in the global South has really been with these elites, right? And being able to uh, secure their support for China's core interests. And China's core interests include things that happen within Chinese territory are China's internal affairs. And if you mess with China's internal affairs, China feels that it can respond in ways that for us would seem quite odd, right? If you would invite the, um, the Hillary Clinton to dinner, you wouldn't expect the Republican administration to curse you necessarily or even take recognition of it. However, if you invite the Dalai Lama to dinner, the Chinese ambassador is going to criticize you. And so, you know, what we would consider an internal affair, which is who I eat in my house is my business for China. If that person is somebody who they oppose, then they consider interference in their business, which gets to the point of where are the strings attached, right? Now, the West has its strings. We want to see some good governance, some transparency. We want to see the money accountable. This is the Western accountability measures. And yeah, uh, and they want to see human rights. They don't want to see the money used to... Engage in, in in human rights abuses, and and you often hear criticism of these strings attached in the global south. Sometimes not, by the way. Sometimes people will appreciate that. You know, good. You prevent a little corruption here. Good. But generally, you will hear people in the global south criticize this and suggest that China has a no strings attached approach. But as I said, not always. Not if you mess with their core interests. So if you were to abuse your own population. That's your business. But if you're going to invite the Dalai Lama, that's our business, you see. And so this is a different kind of string. And you can make your own decision of it's better or worse. But it's not no strings attached. It's just different. Um, and so in the circling back to our point then, the Xinjiang issue is one of these important core interests for China. And it's willing to lose support around the world in the West and in liberal democracies in order to maintain this policy um, and the support of the global South nations, I think, give it, um, give the policy resilience because they can point to this and say, well, if Argentina and these other countries didn't uh, vote to condemn us, then that gives us breathing room. But you can imagine a world where if we had all come together in unified voice, this would put a lot more pressure on Beijing. So one could see this as a success, but in my view, it's a kind of empty success because I don't think that the, 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 
the policymakers in these countries believe that there is no problem here. They're just doing what they're elected to do, which is to serve their own constituencies. But I don't think it means that they look at China more favorably. And I don't think that that necessarily means those people think there is no genocide or no human rights abuses. But they just say, for the national interests of my country, I'm not going to make that decision. In Central and Eastern Europe, China has preferred to engage uh, either through its own sub-regional multilateral format, 16 plus 1, or strictly uh, on a bilateral basis. How does China engage towards the global south, and why? So China's engagement with Africa, for instance, and this mostly uh, describes the global south generally, includes four levels. The global level, which includes the the UN and the, the IMF, the International Criminal Court, etc., although China's not a member of the latter. But um, the second level, which is the regional level, and this is what you mentioned, 16 plus 1 in Africa, I said is FOCAC, the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation. Then you would see ASEAN plus 1, um, and then you would see the Shanghai Cooperation Forum, and then you would see the CELAC Forum, the China-Latin America Forum. Um, and so you, you have a creation of these regional fora um, in order to engage on a regional level this grouping of countries. Africa uh, is seen through the FOCAC form as a continent, so they don't hive off North Africa. It's included in FOCAC. Uh, Egypt, for instance, is a member of both FOCAC and the forum that China holds in the Middle East, the China Middle East Forum. So Egypt has actually hosted both. Okay, So they're a unique player, um, and they've always been the, the a very key player for China. The relations with Egypt are very important. In fact, Egypt may have been the first country to recognize China in Africa. So um, these regional uh, relations, uh, which were created by China, interestingly enough, there's a kind of a a narrative being put out that Africans suggested the creation of FOCAC. Um, But from what Ambassador Shin and I in our research, we found that is dubious at best, right? That this is a kind of uh, desire to suggest that the Africans came up with it was really a, a dinner or two that was held where an African mused about this idea and then it was kind of taken, funded, you know, put together, right? So a kind of a reverse uh, creation myth. Um, But so this is the regional level. On the sub-regional level, it's usually applied only to Africa because Africa has the ECOWAS forum in in Western uh, Africa, the COMESA forum in East Africa, the East uh, East Africa uh, forum, Yes. Um, Then the SADC in Southern Africa. And so you have these um, uh, sub-regional groupings. And China engages those too. In fact, China is building the the headquarters for ECOWAS right now. Um, In fact, China did build the the headquarters for the African Union. And the African Union, of course, is another one of these regional level, as I said, a regional level, I should have mentioned African Union. Okay, so you have the global, the regional, you have sub-regional, and under that you have the foundational level, which is the bilateral level. And today in the discussion, we're going to be talking about China's Africa-focused propaganda work, which is almost entirely on this bilateral level, where China holds you know, massive asymmetry, uh, again, with all countries within the global south, maybe save India, although probably India to some degree as well. And so China uh, engages bilaterally uh, through uh, this uh, numerous different engagements that it has, constant uh, diplomacy. And so these are the four levels, I would say, of China's engagement with the global south. Mm -hmm. What kind of diplomacy tools uh, China employs? So China's diplomacy, especially its what China calls soft power, and I'm using quotes on that, 
is a top-down approach. It's best conceived of as China's Africa-focused propaganda work. Or, um, and under Africa-focused propaganda work, you would have numerous subcategories of that work. You would have media propaganda, cultural propaganda, educational propaganda, energy propaganda. During COVID-19, we even had health propaganda, right? And this is an unlimited grouping because the point is to advance China's core national interests using these engagements, right? So um, propaganda is not only uh, a way to enhance China's image, it's also a way to achieve the goals of its three core national interests, as well as increasingly to undermine the United States. Okay, so maybe this is where the IR theorists have a little bit of it right, that, that undermining the U.S. has increasingly become a, a, an important meta-narrative that China has a better democracy and China is doing uh, development better um, than, the, than the West and then in the U.S. in particular, and that democracy is a chaotic system. Look at the U.S., and uh, we have a system which is stable and which is uh, serving the needs of our people. So a juxtaposition increasingly that they're pushing forward um, in their engagement. Um, you also have a variety of other different types of engagements. Of course, you have a traditional diplomatic engagement. You have increasingly a military engagement where you would have like the People's Liberation Army Navy doing port calls. You'd have exchanges and training military. And then one particular topic that I really like to study and have studied a long time is the International Department of the Communist Party of China and their engagement. And they are very, very engaged on the continent, um, amazingly so. And the only thing I want to kind of finish up with, I mean, this is the rough lay of the land, is that if we take this and juxtapose it with the United States, you see almost an entirely different situation. I mean, if you ask the United States leaders where Africa is on their priority list, I mean, it's at the bottom, right? Um, and during the Trump administration, our Africa policy seemed to be more of a response to China in Africa policy than an Africa policy. And this shows you kind of the level of prioritization. China is spending billions to create and influence Africans and create relationships and build and maintain and sustain uh, relationships. Even during COVID, they're doing their best using virtual and all different ways to try to maintain. And we can talk later how effective that is. I don't think it is, but they're trying. And on the U.S. side, um, there is a real kind of focus on the counterterrorism issues. And, and African trade has fallen off quite a lot. And so there's... There's just little uh, political support in Washington for you know, investing heavily in, in the Africa relationship. And so um, it's really stark given that difference in investment that the United States is still generally seen just as favorably or maybe even a little more favorably in most African countries. So um, imagine if the U.S. tried. <laughs> um, you know, but it doesn't, it speaks of the difference here, the, the real difference in approach. Um, in the, you go to Africa and you hear a lot of hip-hop music. You see a lot of, uh, I'd say NBA, you see baseball caps, you see a kind of a grassroots American culture. You know, nobody created Tupac in the CIA to make Africans like America more, right? This is a grassroots creation. And there, and then it, not only do the relations become more genuine, but they, they, they don't feel like they're contrived from above. Right? They don't feel like they're astroturfed. And so China is a top-down approach. And the U.S. relations, almost all of them at this point, are really grassroots up because the government is neglecting Africa. So it's a, you know, these two differences are really stark.
Europe is also struggling to uh, catch up with China. And in 2021, Europe unveiled its Global Gateway Project, which should be the alternative to the Chinese BRI. Basically, it will replicate China's model. Do you think Europe have a chance to compete with China in the global infrastructure and connectivity race? No. And I think that it would be foolish to try. This has become a, a kind of a desire to do what China does better than China. But look, um, in America, in Europe, we have stock markets. And if our banks went out and said, you know, we're going to go and we're going to make loans to create Chinese infrastructure, excuse me, to create African infrastructure, their stock prices would collapse. Even if they said infrastructure anywhere, since infrastructure doesn't tend to make much money, right? It's not a big money, especially trains. But um, in any case, there isn't a... Um, the kind of financing mechanism and the kind of political support. Remember, I mean, Xi Jinping said there will be Belt and Road. He put it in the Chinese constitution, okay? Just to get your head around that, like imagine the Americans adding an amendment to our constitution to invest in African infrastructure or, or Global South infrastructure beyond Africa, of course. Right? Global, this is unthinkable, right? Unthinkable. How about the Czech Republic? Oh, that unthinkable. Unthinkable. So this can give us a real sense of the differences. And so, and the Chinese who are experts, well, we're not foolish about this at all. I did some interviews with people who were at the NDRC who was supervising, and I t showed them my concerns about uh, basically China debt trapping itself, right? T China investing a whole lot of money that was not going to come back. And their response to me was shocking. They said, you may be too optimistic. Because according to their data, they could lose even more than I had even estimated because they knew what they had actually put out there. So now we are in a situation where it's, not a, it's worse than anyone thought because of COVID. And so the worst thing we could do is follow their strategy, which they're in the middle of abandoning, right? They have abandoned this approach. They are going for slimmer, uh, more profitable, more tech-related, um, uh, more fast-moving, quicker completion times. I mean, they're really trying to make their strategy much more streamlined and effective. If we actually go back 10 years and adopt the strategy that has something that they have even given up, that would be kind of real foolishness. So I think the best thing for us to do is to be the best liberal Western, we can be. Not try to out-China China. Let China be China, and we'll be us. And then we'll see how the world responds. And yes, they have some advantages, but yes, they have some disadvantages as well. And so I, I think that it would be a big mistake uh, to try to replicate the Belt and Road in the West. Um, I think it would be a big mistake to try to really try to replicate China's propaganda approach as well. Early 60% of China's overseas loans are now held by countries considered to be in financial distress, compared with only 5% in 2010. Uh, with the recent Sri Lankan economic crisis and other countries struggling with repayment of loans, China has been accused of conducting so-called debt trap diplomacy. Would you say that China is responsible for the dire situation of these indebted countries? Now, this is a really important question because it's been part of the discussion in Washington for quite some time. And, and there's been a lot of ink spilled about, is this debt trap diplomacy? Is it not? Um, but to me, I think that kind of, to some degree, misses the point. Um, China went out with the full intention of being paid back. 
because a debt trap suggests a trap. It suggests the intent was to overload these countries such that they couldn't pay back. But in all of the engagements I had in China, it was clear that the goal was to provide loans that could be paid back. Now, perhaps those were more optimistic circumstances, certainly pre-COVID. I think they were too optimistic, but the goal was to create a kind of virtuous cycle of development in these countries where maybe the railway itself wouldn't generate revenue, but it would generate enough GDP growth that the country would have enough to pay back China. So the fact that 60% of these countries, as you say, are in uh, debt distress doesn't bode well for bankers in Beijing. And it helps to explain why they've stopped writing a lot of these checks because they, I think, have, uh, you know, it's come back to bite them a little bit. Um, I recall one discussion uh, with a uh, senior Chinese officials and senior former American officials, where we asked this question, are you concerned about this issue? Because, you know, everybody's happy until the tide goes in and we see who's wearing trunks. And the answer is the tide not only went in, it went in much further than anyone ever thought. And that meant that a lot of these countries are really suffering. And so the question of how is China going to deal with this and how it's generally dealt with it is to, when possible, try to, on a bilateral basis, on a case-by-case basis, restructure the loans out in perpetuity. One, or not in perpetuity, that was the wrong statement, but um, to restructure the loans uh, such to make them viable. The one thing China did was it wrote off these no interest loans. But to me, that's more about just a line in a newspaper than anything else, because those loans represented like less than 1% of the total. So um, writing off those loans is not important. It's the interest loans, right? But Actually, what's going on now, which is really fascinating and very understudied, is the commercial loans that are going to African uh, firms that are going from Chinese banks, um, and those are not public. And when I spoke to one African official with a major African country in charge of the loan portfolio, she was able to tell me almost exactly the amount that her country owed to China, but she could not tell how much the firms in her country owed. And so she, what she described this as is a hidden debt bubble that lurks under the surface that we don't know what we don't know. And that the, the new Belt and Road Initiative is really focused on commercial loans um, and to what is considered to be hopefully more viable projects. But the upshot is that no, I don't think China debt trapped these countries. Um, but I do believe that China is paying the price for these countries not being able to pay back. And, and who knows, maybe they never will. I mean, we should never forget the Tanzam Railway that China built after the World Bank said we won't fund this. The African countries, Tanzania, Zambia, they never paid it back. In the end, that loans had to be written off in the 2000s. They sat on the books for dozens of years before they were finally written off. And they were written off because it just was, you know, inflated away to some degree. Um, but the point is that, you know, China is in a, a difficult political situation now um, and a different economic, difficult economic situation because it's easy to paper over these losses when your GDP growth is 10%. But when your GDP growth is like 3%, if you're lucky, and you won't even report your growth figures in the third quarter because you're afraid of what they might be. That means that you're not really in a position to paper over these losses and you really do want that money back. In Central and Eastern Europe, the BRI has not achieved tangible results. Do you think the Belt and Road Initiative has translated into a more significant Chinese influence in Africa? Well, you know, it's, the Belt and Road in Africa is very interesting because... Many of the techniques that China 
later called Belt and Road, were initially tested in Africa, particularly in Angola. Um, and so you have these projects which predate Belt and Road, which were then kind of looped in or, lap or pulled into the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, but weren't initially, but were Belt and Road style or like Belt and Road 1.0 or whatever, but they predated 2013. Um, and so the Belt and Road Initiative in Africa uh, or what, or this kind of debt de uh, debt driven growth, right? You could, because, you know, it's important to distinguish between different types of finance um, and, and how those things get paid back. Um, and, you know, if equity finance um, is different than a loan, right? Um, and so there's just a difference in the way that China does this. And so there's a fear that China may um, turn its debt into equity. But honestly, that would be putting themselves pretty far at the back of the line in terms of repayment. It would also make them basically uh, a, a part owner in these projects. And, and when you're an owner, you got a whole bunch of different questions than when you're a banker, right? There's a different set of issues there. So, um, you know, China's efforts to build infrastructure in Africa in many cases have been helpful and useful, but in many other cases, they have not been. And I think a lot of it just has to do with the lack of vetting of the projects. And let me give you one example. I did an interviews with the China uh, Africa Development Bank, um, and, no, the China Africa Development Fund, excuse me, kind of. And this China Africa Development Fund was uh, is a child of the China Africa Development Bank, which basically said, here's 10 billion, go make smart equity investments, right? This isn't the loan stuff, this is make 10. And so when we interviewed them in 2017, we said, well, what percentage of your loans are of, of your equity is, is performing? Like how much of it are you really? And they were like, it's, it's pretty terrible. Like we did the best due diligence we knew how. We, we hired people who worked at Morgan Stanley and we, we did everything we could to find good investments for our money and still we're at about 50, 60 non-performing. And it's just unlikely we're gonna be able to continue. So at that rate, it's really hard to see how this can be a sustainable process. Um, and so I don't, I just don't see how they can continue. The only thing they can do is what they're doing, which is to get slimmer and to get more focused and more maybe tech related. Um, but old school infrastructure development, like roads, bridges, and rails, I just don't think there's anything financially in it for them. Um, the only reason the Chinese companies did it was because these things were all underwritten by Sinosure and funded by Chinese policy banks. So it was a no loss for them. They, they just made money. But I do want to say one other thing that's never gotten any publicity, but is actually kind of a sub theme here, which is, you know, you, you had Chinese development banks made loans to big Chinese companies. And then often those Chinese companies would outsource to other smaller Chinese companies, sometimes provincial level companies. And those provincial level companies, their, uh, their strategies were different. I mean, their approaches were different. Some were never really given enough money to do the project properly. Others um, were just told that this is going to be a loss leader for you and get used to it. And so, um, there are different actors in this game, some of which have profited more than others. Would you have any advice for young China scholars? Well, I mean, if you're going to study China, you have to be persistent. You've got to have like chutzpah because it's not easy and you have to be ready for that. So. You, you've got to prepare yourself to be dealing with an environment, especially, I mean, you didn't ask me about um, nationality in particular. 
but especially if you're an American who wants to study China right now, it's really hard. Um, there's just this really negative vibe in the relationship, and we won't have to spend our time talking about why. I think we all know a lot of the reasons why, but it makes it really hard if I was going to talk to myself 20 years ago to, to be optimistic about doing this. Um, and that's really unfortunate because the kind of welcoming that I got in China is just so different than what they're getting. And it's, you know, it's hard. They've got to persevere and they've got to actually really want it. On that note, if you are a young professional or a student from Europe, interested in China or China's relations with Europe, you can submit your latest work to Choice as part of our Future Choice initiative. For more information, check our website www.chinaobservers.eu. This was Voice for Choice. If you would like to know more about our work, please do visit our website at chinaobservers.eu. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn. We hope you'll make the right choice and tune in for the next episode of Voice for Choice.